Listen now to The Proof Podcast Season 2, The Murder at the Warehouse. How'd you find out something had happened? My mom called me and said, Lori, the police found a body, and they're pretty sure it's Renee. Right, right away, you thought right Jake. Right away. In my head already, I thought it was Jake. Season 2 of Proof is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. This is a CBC Podcast. Sherry Furtuck vanished from the gravel pit on a cold day in December 2015. Now it's nearly the end of summer in 2023, and her estranged husband Greg is still on trial for murder. I probably sound like a broken record when I say the trial has been held up again. It can't move forward, not until the judge says whether Greg's confession is in or out as evidence. We told you that decision could come soon. That was more than six months ago, and we're still waiting. This 40-year ruling is a really big deal for this case, and the judge was actually ready to share it a long time ago. But Greg is still acting as his own lawyer, and he continues to cause delays. So I'm here now with an update on what Greg's been trying to do and why there's still no conclusion to this case. Furtuck wants to quiz the Crown's ballistic expert, and he has questions for his former girlfriend... I don't want to say that I I dread opening my mailbox and seeing notices from the court, but I did. My first thought was, oh my God, Greg Furtuck has made an application. Furtuck began the conversation by saying, hey Doris, remember me, long time, and I'm still a victim. All the stuff that's been going on in this trial, it's going to be a real head shaker once I get up and start talking. I'm Kendall Latimer, and this is episode 14 of The Pit. Vaudiers don't usually drag on this long. They're hardly ever reopened. But that's happened multiple times in Greg's case. We'll talk about the latest delay in a little bit. But first, we should talk about where we left off in the last episode. Well, actually, yeah, if you could come down here and arranged an interview, that would be perfect. Greg asked us to come speak with him at the jail. We want to interview him in person, so we made a plan to go down there. But like so many things in this story, that plan fell apart. The provincial government won't let us in. A spokesperson says they only allow journalists to bring recorders into jail for exceptional circumstances, and this doesn't meet their bar. If Greg wants to speak with us, it has to be by phone. So even though they've let us interview him there before, and even though he's now representing himself, we still can't talk to him face to face. So I wrote to Greg again to let him know what happened. He called back, saying he wants to keep talking. Greg calls me often. The calls come without warning, like when I'm making brunch or out for a walk. So I have to scramble to record our interviews on my phone. It's not ideal, but I have a lot of questions. The calls are capped at 20 minutes. 
I try to cover as much ground as possible. I ask him about Sherry. He still insists he had nothing to do with her disappearance. I wish to hell they would find her. You know, then that would be absolute proof I didn't do nothing to her. (laughs) We talk about the rifle, the one that Dean and Courtney Williams found under that shed west of Saskatoon. The Crown says this is the murder weapon. Greg says he's not worried about it. Another thing, too, that bullshit gun that they found. I even told my lawyer, Mike Nolan, there, as an expert witness, if they checked another Ruger 1022, you know, because that one matched the shells there. And he wouldn't. I asked the expert witness, does he realize that every Ruger 1022 in North America will match those shells of the gravel pit, you know? Oh, you're just making that up. So you think that the gun that they found has no bearing on the case? Absolutely no bearing. The only way you're going to find out if that gun had any bearing that they found is to find the body and extract the the lead or whatever, whatever happened to it. Who knows? Maybe that wasn't even shot. Maybe somebody choked her or stabbed her. I don't know. You know, got rid of her that way. But, uh, you need the lead that goes through the barrel. The lead is like a fingerprint. In our conversations, Greg shows disdain and contempt for Crown Prosecutor Corey Bliss, and he accuses the RCMP of planting evidence against him. Oh, the stuff that's been going on in this trial, it's going to be a real head shaker once I get up and get start talking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sue big time, because this, this is, you know, being stuck into a 21 hours a day into a 6 by 10 dog kennel for 1,400 days for nothing. You know, like, I've owned dogs my whole life, and I would never, ever do that to my own dog. Never. It would be more humane for them to just take me out and shoot me than what they did to me. Just a reminder, Greg's accusations of corruption and conspiracy are allegations. He has not provided evidence to back up these claims. I asked Greg if he plans to testify at the trial. He dances around the question and says what he really wants is to hear from Doris, his former girlfriend. He also asks me to speak with her. Yeah, you should actually go interview Doris LaRock. She'll tell you what they did to her, how I got stuck in here. I should note that we did ask Doris for an interview long before she testified against Greg. At the time, she told us she didn't want to talk. She said she might speak with us once the trial was over. But that was years ago, and the judge's decision is still far away. Greg tells me he thinks the police pressured Doris into signing a no-contact order, and that's why he didn't get out on bail. I would have been uh, living with Doris. I would have been staying with her. That's where I was. I was for the last seven years prior to getting arrested. I was, you know, me and Doris were living together. I, I used to walk the dog every day. And then we'd go for, you know, an hour or so or something like that. And we used to, depending on what time of the year, we used to take, go down to Pike Lake, you know, walk the dog through the bushes. But Greg's bail hearing didn't go ahead, and Doris ended up testifying against him. I asked Greg why he thinks the police would try to prevent him from getting bail. Well, do you know why? Because they don't have any more evidence right now than they did in 2017. Mr. Big spent $640,000 to 
$640,000. They're protecting their own jobs right now. That's what they're doing. Justice Richard Daniluk was supposed to make his ruling on the voir evidence earlier this year. That was set for April. But two weeks before that hearing, we got a notification from the court saying the decision was called off. The wording was clear. This delay was not the judge's fault. Accused killer Greg Furtuck wants to recall witnesses at his Saskatoon murder trial so he can cross-examine them personally. He wants to ask questions he says his former lawyers didn't ask. Furtuck wants to quiz the Crown's ballistic expert and he has questions for his former girlfriend. Justice Richard Daniluk reserved his decision on the application until next month. Once it became clear what Greg was up to, I gave Alicia a call. She's been busy, still working across the globe in Australia, but she continues to follow this case from afar. So I'm really curious to know more about why the voir dire decision was called off again. So I show up to court on the day that we were supposed to get the ruling, right? We learn that Greg actually wants to call back two of the Crown witnesses, which would require reopening the voir dire. Who are the witnesses that Greg wants to call back? The person that the Crown called as their expert on the gun, Kenneth Chan. He's the one that said in his expert opinion that that rifle, which was found under the shed, was the rifle that was fired at the gravel pit. Greg says he wants to question the gun expert because he says his former lawyers missed certain questions that would show the shell casings found in the gravel pit where Sherry disappeared did not come from one of his guns. He actually said in court he could prove the shells were, quote, not mine. But he doesn't have to prove that. That's not up to him, is it? Right. He doesn't have to say or prove anything. It's up to the Crown to prove the elements of first-degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt. The problem here for the judge when it comes to considering Greg's request here to reopen the voir dire comes from those assertions from Greg that his lawyers ultimately didn't ask the questions that Greg, who was their client at the time, wanted asked. And so Greg is alleging that they missed elements or were incompetent during the cross-examination. So if they didn't do what he wanted, is Greg having a fair trial in the eyes of the court? And you said he also wants to bring Doris back. I mean, that really struck me because that could be really difficult for her or intimidating. Obviously, Doris was his common law partner. She testified even then that she suspected she may have some sort of early dementia or memory loss issues. Why does he want her to testify again? Greg says the questions he's going to ask Doris will show that her testimony was basically a lie and that what she said doesn't corroborate anything. In 2021, when she testified, that's when she says Greg came home in 2015, just hours after Sherry disappeared. And she says Greg was super drunk and that he said that he had shot Sherry and buried her at the gravel pit. Right, but she didn't tell the police this until later. She didn't tell them until 2020, even though she was interviewed multiple times about Greg and Sherry and the disappearance. During a phone call with Greg, I asked him what he thought about what Doris said. That was total bullshit. I told my, yeah, that useless bodner there, I never said that to her. And I, I can prove that because, you know what, you can't dig a hole in a gravel pit in December. So how the hell was I going to bury her in a gravel pit? It was a total made-up story when I was arrested one day for the murder of Sherry, and then she let me go the next day because I didn't. 
This really foreshadows for me what we're going to hear when he actually gets back in court. Is Justice Danilo going to allow this? Yeah, so actually when Greg first made the request, he was super adamant that he wanted to question Doris in person. You'll remember when Doris testified a couple years ago, she testified from a separate room at the courthouse by video. But this time around, Greg really wanted to question her face to face. The judge didn't allow that request, and the judge also made a point to note that Greg and Doris had been in a personal relationship, so Greg really needs to keep his questions relevant. How much of this is about writing what he feels are wrongs against him personally versus his actual attempt to represent himself when greg was like call doris call doris he was even like if you interview doris i won't have to call her to court and explain to her uh, if she gives you an interview i won't have to call her into court for a witness so and i said what the media does has no bearing on what happens in court but at least at least at least it'll be out the truth will get out there yeah does it feel to you like these variables are just stacking up. You know, there's Greg's head injury. You know, then there's all the delays through the COVID process. Then there's this complaints against Mike Nolan and Morris Bodnar. It just feels like all of these kind of wild card elements that you would not expect or would not play out in a normal case seem to just be piling up here. It's just interesting to think about how this quest for a fair trial puts Sherry's family further away from any sort of, I guess, closure. And I imagine the fear would be that something could go wrong and it could lead to a mistrial. After all of this time and emotional energy that Sherry's family has had to put into watching this trial unfold, that, that something could go wrong the longer that it drags on. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. A new podcast from In the Dark and The New Yorker asks a question. Why do the women in Dubai's royal family keep trying to run away? The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. As Greg's murder trial trudges along at the Court of King's Bench, his legal matters take another turn at a different courthouse. The provincial court typically handles less serious criminal offenses, and Greg's name appears on the docket seemingly out of the blue. We told you earlier that Greg is not allowed to contact Doris. As it turns out, he's accused of speaking with her when he wasn't supposed to. Greg believes Doris was pressured to turn against him. He blames two people for this, Prosecutor Corey Bliss and an RCMP officer named Keith Hill. You know, the stuff that's gone on here is unreal. We didn't hear going on 1,400 days in remand, all on account of Corey Bliss and uh, Keith Hill. They wanted a no-contact order against me and uh, Doris, so I wouldn't have a place to go back to. Corey Bliss and RCMP officer Keith Hill planted that bullshit 
on me, so I would have to stay in here. Even if Greg's allegations were true, and we haven't seen evidence that they are, the trial is not a debate about how the conditions came to be. It's about whether the no-contact order existed, and if it did exist, did Greg break it? And it's up to a new judge, Justice Bruce Bauer, to deal with this. Well, I was uh, very interested because uh, uh, this would be the second judge who uh, Mr. Furtock had appeared in front of, and uh, Judge Bruce Bauer in, in provincial court. That's Dan Zakreski. You might remember him from earlier episodes. He's been covering crime in Saskatoon for decades, and he's helping report on Greg Furtek's case, including the second trial. So we got together to sort out what happened. So, Kendall, I'm really curious here. You know, we've we've both seen uh, uh, Greg Furtock at Court of King's Bench, but there's been sort of this this side story going on, if I could call it that, where uh, he was facing a breach charge and actually went through a provincial court trial where he represented himself. Mm-hmm. Well, you were in court for that. What was it like to see see Greg alone at the bench? So there's Greg. He's got his still wearing his orange prison shirt. And then he's beside Corey, who's looking sharp in a suit. They're in the courtroom basically sitting as equals, even though Greg is also the accused in this situation. Things get pretty interesting when Corey Bliss decides to call Keith Hill to testify. Keith Hill is the RCMP officer that Greg is a little bit obsessed with. I'm quite curious as to, to why Corey Bliss would have called Keith Hill, because you're quite right. That's a, a name uh, that uh, Mr. Furtuck has, has fixated on from the start. How did he play into this provincial court trial? He was basically called so he could identify that it was Greg speaking with Doris on those recordings because he's been part of this investigation into Sherry's disappearance and subsequently Greg Furtuck since the get-go. So he's listened to hours of tapes of Greg. He knows his voice. He's also spoken with Doris directly. And what was really interesting, Dan, was that Greg got a chance to question Keith Hill. And instead of questioning him about how how he identified their voices or how he could know for sure that it was actually them, Greg went on and on, as he sometimes does, about what he believed Keith Hill did to Doris, saying that Keith Hill threatened to arrest Doris if she didn't sign this no-contact order. Keith Hill obviously said to Greg that he would never say that. He would never threaten her into this. But like I said, it was just chaotic and off track. And the judge had to basically keep reminding Greg that that's not the point of this trial. You know, that's um, very typical, I think, of what we've seen. And uh, uh, certainly the admonishments from the bench that we've heard from Justice Daniluk, they all turn on, on trying to get it into his head, if I could describe it like that, uh, that your questions are not evidence. Uh, and I think Greg's failing in these scenarios is he either doesn't understand that or he's unwilling to accept it. And so you were actually, you went back to court to pick up the the decision about whether or not Greg was convicted or not of this breach charge. So when you went back to court that day, what was that like for you? It was fascinating to watch because, I mean, I've seen uh, Judge Bauer, first of all, as a Crown prosecutor uh, and then as a judge. And he's a, a very steady force in the courtroom. He was very polite to Mr. Furtuck, but he also clearly didn't get dragged into what Greg was trying to do. He uh, delivered the, the decision that, uh, and, and it was in some respects a no-brainer. When Judge Bauer uh, found him guilty, then they wanted to move on to the sentencing phase. And the the first thing that Corey Bliss asked Greg Furtuck was, 
whether he admitted his criminal record. Standard procedure, right? Very standard. Absolutely. It's the first thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And Greg immediately launches into a speech about Keith Hill and the RCMP. And Judge Bauer just goes, are you admitting the criminal record? And Greg speeches and he sort of cuts him off very politely and then says, we're going to have to order it from Regina and we'll set a date for the next hearing. You know, Judge Bauer's dealt with a lot of... uh, combat of uh, uh, people in the box over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he just wasn't going to have anything with it. What do you make of how politely this judge and others have handled accused people that are behaving like Greg Furtuck who aren't necessarily following courtroom protocol or etiquette or courtesy and have a tendency to veer off course or interrupt or, or frankly just extremely difficult to deal with? You know, the other judge, King's Bench judge that I saw it with most frequently was uh, Justice Gerald Albright. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the stuff that he took from people um, out of politeness and out of an abundance of caution w- was astonishing. I would have, you know, lost my temper and been screaming at people mm-hmm. several appearances early. But he was always steady and even. And, and I think the the misunderstanding or the, or the mistake a lot of the people make, the accused make, uh, when they're treated with almost deference. They're, they're treated as an equal in that courtroom. You know, Greg Furtuck is self-representing himself, so mm-hmm. he's treated uh, w- like that. I think they mistake kindness for weakness, uh, and it always comes around and, and bites them in the end at, at some point. Uh, and this is uh, tied intimately, to, and the judges always talk about this, to the presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. This person comes into the courtroom like you or I. Mm-hmm. Nothing has been established. But once it is established, if they are found guilty, uh, they are going to see the other side of, of the judge and the justice system. And, and we've seen glimpses of this with Justice Daniluk. If I recall correctly, you recently sat through another trial that Justice Richard Daniluk was presiding over, actually another domestic homicide. That decision he made in the end, people were just captured by how strongly worded it was and and how he handled that matter. The particular case you're referencing was a a man named Ranbeard Duell. And in its own way, it presented challenges similar to Greg Furtuck Hmm. in the sense that it was a complicated case. Uh, There was a uh, uh, very much circumstantial evidence. Uh, you know, Greg Furtick had had a head injury, so there were issues of comprehension. Here it was language. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did we need a translator in court? So uh, uh, Justice Danilk, all through the trial, was, uh, again, almost deferential to the accused. You know, do you have a notebook? Do you have a pen? If you don't understand anything, stop the process. And it was like that through the entire trial. Uh, and then he found him guilty. He found this man guilty of... Uh, killing his ex-wife's niece. And it was during the sentencing that we got a glimpse of everything from, certainly from my perspective, of what the judge had sort of just kept in check. Uh, And and I should be very clear, this is my interpretation of what I saw. Mm -hmm. But he had been reasonable and polite to the entire trial. Uh, And then when it got down to the sentencing, he spoke to the uh, victim, the, the young woman's uh, aunt, who was clearly concerned that she had somehow had some responsibility. She blamed herself. Yes, her, mm-hmm. in her niece had getting killed. And Justice Daniluk just spoke directly to her and said, look, this is not your fault. Mm-hmm. I have uh, I always remember the line, I have grown weary of this, the, the domestic violence. 
And he just laid it out so explicitly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Men in Saskatchewan solve their problems with women by hitting them. Mm -hmm. uh, And that is wrong. And looking at Duel, sir, you're a killer. Uh, The presumption of innocence is no longer there. I think there, there's going to be an accounting in this Furtuck trial at the end, either way. I'm so curious about what Justice Richard Danilik will have to say when everything is said and done. Whatever way it comes down, what do you expect? I think that this trial that has, has just dragged on interminably with, with more delays than anyone has ever seen, I think things are going to wrap up fairly quickly. I think what everyone is hoping for, I'm certainly hoping for, is, is a clean conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evidence that was presented in the voir dire will be accepted. He will accept the Mr. Big sting, and that will be applied to the trial, in which case it will end fairly quickly mm-hmm. because uh, everybody's testified. And if he accepts the voir dire evidence, he's accepting that Greg Furtuck admitted to killing Sherry and acted it out. By the same token, uh, if he does not accept that evidence or uh, does not accept key portions of it, like the admission, right. uh, then we're going to see Mr. Big Stings. Uh, Under scrutiny, right? Uh, thrown on the barbecue. Yes. Uh, because mm-hmm. those are controversial as it stands. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court has already weighed in on them. The, the whole concept of the of the burden of evidence, it's now on the Crown to prove that it should be admitted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the stakes are really high. It's near the end of June when Greg's murder trial picks up again. It's back on so he can recall the Crown witnesses, the gun expert, and Doris. As the court date approaches, I think about how strange it is that Greg was convicted of a criminal offense because he spoke with Doris, and yet he's allowed to force her back to the courtroom so he can question her. Greg Furtuck is on trial for first-degree murder, but yesterday he shifted his position in the courtroom. From the prisoner's box to the defense lawyer's chair, he cross-examined his former girlfriend and a gun expert yesterday to personally question them about their testimony. On the day of questioning, Dan and I are both out of town, but our colleague Pratouche Dayal was there in the courtroom. I give him a call to see how it went. Hey, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay, perfect. How are you doing? How did it go for you? I think the biggest takeaway today was very surprising was, you know, Doris saying that Furtick never told her that he killed Sherry. And uh, we all were like, oh, my God, wow. Did she expand more on that or how did that come about? Did she say she made that story up or she was confused? She just said, I know Furtick never told me. And the judge also tried to... Uh, probe her on that, and uh, she said, no, I don't remember Furtuk telling me ever this. And today, like Furtuk, while cross-examining, uh, asked quite a few questions, uh, and to the most of them, she just replied, no, I don't remember that. No, I don't mm-hmm. recall that. Did the prosecutors ask Doris any questions? No, they did not. Uh, they did on two occasions. Uh, you know, redirect him because mm. Furtick began the conversation by saying, uh, hey, Doris, remember me long time and I'm still a victim. And the judge immediately jumped on that saying, you cannot be saying all this. 
And so the judge jumped in, but did Doris acknowledge Greg or, like, remember their relationship? Or did she have a yeah. chance even? What did she say? Yeah, that's again, again, you know, where the uh, perhaps the memory loss could be coming in because uh, in the very second or third question, Furter uh, uh, asked, do you remember, Doris, that you know, we were living together for six to seven years? To which Doris replies, no, it was just one year. I have memory loss, but I'm sure it was one year. And so was there anything else that stood out to you from the interactions with Greg and, and Doris? It did seem he was trying to you know, maybe get this feeling out of Doris that you know, RCMP coerced her into giving that statement. To which again, you know, Doris replies, no, I do not think that way. I never felt that way. So Doris says she never felt pressured by the police. But she also now says that Greg did not drunkenly admit to killing Sherry. After Greg questioned Doris, he also questioned the gun expert. The expert did not change his testimony. He still says the gun is linked to the shell casings the police found at the gravel pit. With the cross-examination over, the voir dire is closed again. And then Greg gets a chance to speak to the judge. He's given the opportunity to make his case for why the judge should reject the crime boss confession, along with other evidence gathered in the sting operation. The prosecutors already submitted their arguments to the judge. So did the amicus curiae, the friend of the court. When Greg gets his turn, he pretty much says what he's been telling us all along, that he's the victim here. In his oral submission around admissibility of the evidence, Furtuck said he did not kill Sherry, and that all the information he shared with the undercover officers was not true. The King's Bench Justice adjourned the case until September 22nd, when the judge will give his decision on the trial within the trial. But less than a month before that decision, we got another notice from the court, saying there was another application from the defense. I don't want to say that I I dread opening my mailbox and seeing notices from the court, but I did. Uh, because I, I, my first thought was, oh, my God, uh, Greg Furtuck has made an application. That's Dan again. Dan attended the court hearing that was held for Greg's new application. Given what you and I know about the trial, I couldn't figure out what the heck is he applying for? Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on? There was on? nothing left. There's there was nothing, nothing left. left. I thought. Well, we catch up after it's over. And at this point, it really feels like Greg is throwing spaghetti at a wall to see what sticks. The uh, amicus curiae, mm-hmm. the friend of the court, I felt bad for him because mm-hmm. he stood up and basically told Justice Daniluk that, you know, I'm not 100% sure what uh, Mr. Furtuck is applying for here. I've walked through the material with him. I don't fully understand the point he's trying to make here. So have at it, Mr. Furtuck. You're the lawyer now. So Justice Daniluk, you know, very patiently, again, Mr. Furtuck, what do you want to do? And, mm-hmm. and what it turned out being, uh, the first part was he wanted uh, sections of his provincial court trial transcripts taken and applied to the voir dire. From the, the breach issue? Correct. Okay. Um, and the other was he wanted, and I don't fully understand this myself, he was trying to make some argument about uh, Doris the Rock's banking records. She had uh, may or may not have given, and I'm not trying to be cute here, 
the Crown and the judge never really understood the point he was trying to make. Mm -hmm. But it had something to do with whether Doris had given up her power of attorney over her banking records. And Greg, as as, uh, I mean, in his defense, and as much as I can make a defense, all he has is time on his hands to think about this stuff. That's right. And I was sitting close enough to him that I could see that he had at least five or six sheets of full scap, handwritten, single spaced. Like he had a <laughs> he had a laundry list. He of had a laundry list of arguments to make, and just none of it made sense. The court transcripts. What he wanted from the transcripts, again, were um, how Keith Hill, the RCMP officer, was lying. You know, look, uh, if you look at my provincial court trial transcripts, Keith Hill says that Doris said this. But when she was recalled to the stand, she actually changed her story. So Keith Hill is a liar. And Justice Daniluk very gently said, perhaps you should consider that the change in the testimony says more about Doris Mm -hmm. than it does about the RCMP. And then uh, uh, Justice Daniluk went on to to try to uh, explain a little bit about the process, and Greg made the fatal mistake of interrupting the judge. Uh, this, I mean, th- again, this is my perspective. Yeah. But he went from zero to salty Daniluk mm-hmm. in about five seconds, and he said, uh, "You're not in a bar, sir. I have uh, shown you the courtesy of of listening to you. Now you will listen to me." Mm-hmm. And he laid it out. Uh, you know, he reiterated the stuff about. Uh, you know, it says more about Doris than it does about the RCMP. Uh, the banking stuff, he has no idea. And then he sort of took a step back and, and gave Mr. Furtuck the eagle-eye view, saying, look, you, uh, even though you are, are now uh, representing yourself, uh, you do not uh, bring a pile of sticks and put them on the courthouse steps and ask, ask us to make you a fire. Mm. He said, the material you've brought forward here is irrelevant mm. and, and nothing that you're trying to establish today is going to help me decide whether you killed your wife and got rid of her body. Mm-hmm. And and to my memory, that's the first time Justice Daniluk has ever sort of addressed it. That straightforward. Got down to the brass tacks of yeah. we're here to decide whether you killed your wife. Yeah. Let's get back to why we're here mm-hmm. and why I'm talking to you. The trial, well, the voir dire part of it, is so close to being over. That big decision is just days away. It will be a pivotal moment for everyone involved in this matter, and it's been a long time coming. Once we learn those details, we'll meet you back here for another episode, and then we can finally take a closer look at what that decision means for this case and the people closest to it. The Pit is a CBC investigative podcast. This episode was put together by me, Kendall Latimer, with help from our senior producer, Kareen Larson. Editorial guidance came from Paul Dornstauter. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or give us a rating, or just tell your friends. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.